Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show all about exploring the paranormal, esoteric, and everything unexplained in the world. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the Druids, as requested by supporter Colton Spenner. Druids are shrouded in a myth, and little that's subjective is really truly known about them, even the modern revivalist Druids. But without a doubt, they are absolutely one of the most ineffable and intriguing mysteries from history. So let's hop into it, shall we? I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. This is, this is the way. This is the way. These entities, they would congregate. A lot of what we have from official sources, at least, concerning the Druids is highly unreliable. The Celts, the Druids themselves, were not the best historians. And there's different ways to pronounce Celts depending on the region and the dialect. So if I'm saying it in a way that you don't or you wouldn't say it, that's probably why. In Ireland, it's typically pronounced as Celts. In Scotland, it's Celts. In Wales, it's typically Celtus. In Cornwall, it's pronounced as Celts or Colts. In Brittany, it's pronounced as Celts or Colts. And in Gaul, it is pronounced as Celts or Colts. Personally, I was raised with it being pronounced Celts. So that's how I'm going to pronounce it for the remainder of this episode. And actually, I take it back that they're saying that they were bad historians because they were actually really good historians. They have a, an amazing bard tradition it's just that their history was passed down orally. They didn't believe in writing it down. And what was written down has either been lost or altered. But a lot of what we do have about them actually comes from Julius Caesar. In fact, for example, if you think of one of the most famous Druidic ceremonies, the Wicker Man, or just the burning of the effigy, well, the only resource that this comes from really is from Julius Caesar and his documentation concerning his conquest of Gaul. The Wicker Man, or Burning Man, was said to have a still living victim or victims inside it. This huge, massive effigy that they then lit on fire as a sacrifice. This would seem barbaric to the ancient Romans, and that was the point. Just like today, the majority of stuff concerning those in power, talking bad about stuff or things they don't like or people they, they don't like who aren't in power, is propaganda. Rome was a conqueror and their next victim was Gaul, the Celts. Caesar's accounts of the Druids are not reliable. They are political. And one of the first things to do is dehumanize people to make uh, the normal population feel comfortable about the horrors being imposed by them. So it's not just Caesar, it's basically the majority of people who document the ancient Celts. 
if the information comes from a source that's the enemy of them, it's a good chance that anything that's said about the Celts should be taken with a grain of salt. Or a whole barrel. So pretty much anything that comes from ancient Rome is possibly bunk, but many people of the ancient world interacted with the Celts. And the Druids, for that matter. In archaeology, you can find Greek artifacts all over the ancestral lands of the Celts, as well as the graves of the ancient kings. However, their history is still not revealed well in the Greek history either. They did give the Celts a flattering name, though, that meant bravery. So the Greeks must actually have thought pretty highly of them. <laughs> in a way that they can, at least. Gotta remember that these ancient people, everyone outside their little groups, their little city-states, were considered barbarians and inferior to them culturally, religiously, basically in all ways they were considered inferior. This was common in the old times. But the Greeks didn't really war with the Celts, and giving them a flattering name is a great sign that there was actually a lot of respect for them, and the Greeks highly valued their trade network with them. However, despite two of the greatest cultures of the ancient world having little bits of clues to give us, overall, it still remains a mystery. Some people have even speculated that they were a cast of priests who migrated to Britain from India, or Chaldea, and were not even originally from the island, or the Celtic culture in general. Druids were among the Celts, but not all Celts were Druids. It's pretty objective, though. Many of the ancient writers state that the Celts came from the east and migrated into Europe, then the British Isles. Others, with a more fantastical view of things, say that the Celts could have even been survivors of Atlantis. This bit reminds me of Conan the Barbarian lore, in which the Sumerians are proto-Celts that were the ancestors of the ancient culture of Atlantis. And... I think I found where Robert E. Howard actually got some inspiration for his fantasy world. Abbot Paul Pizron, 1639 to 1706, has a story on the Celte that says, quote, at least a part of them were called Cimbrians and Sumerians. So this stuff can get kind of convoluted. And that's interesting how the Conan lore is actual history. I had no idea about that. What I find even more interesting is how many ancient people actually considered the Druids to be the ancestors of Atlantis or the survivors of Atlantis. That's pretty awesome. Or at least one of the surviving uh, factions or subcultures of Atlantis because they also believed that other cultures in the world were survivors as well. But it is really apparent that there's a lot more to the Celts and the Druids than seems at face value, especially since a lot of Celtic identities are misrepresented. For example, Caesar called all the Celts the Gauls that were in Europe, but the Greek writers, as well as others, distinguished the names differently from Gaul and Celts. There were Gauls that were Celts, and there were Celts that were not Gauls. Herodotus tells us that the Celtae were the most remote of the people in Europe and the islands distinguishing them from the rest of the population in Europe, including Gaul. And in some views, there are three different groups of people that have all been thrown into the same label as the Celts, or the Gauls. But uh, calling them all Gauls could just have also been the reference to the area that the people were living in, because, uh, you know, Caesar had a lot to do with it. And the area itself 
was considered Gaul, not necessarily the people, Gallia, just like uh, Germania was an area on a map, not necessarily pe a people. But the point is that a lot of these long dead chroniclers had to stitch a lot of ideas and information together to try and document something objective concerning the Sumerians. Even to them all the way back then, all the way back to the first time anyone recorded anything about them, it was a mystery. Yet I find the idea that they are Atlantean immigrants extremely fascinating. And it's weird how Conan the Barbarian, of all things, syncs up with real-world ancient chroniclers. Caesar had an idea on the origin of the Druids and even wrote down some stuff that was actually true concerning them, which is weird. Quote, They know much about the stars and celestial motions, and about the size of the Earth and the universe, and about the essential nature of things, and about the powers and authority of the immortal gods, and these things they teach to their pupils. And throughout the ancient world, including ancient Rome during the times of Caesar, the Druids were looked at as pillars of wisdom and knowledge. They were looked at as philosophical paragons. Davidicus, a famous ancient Druid, was revered after coming to Rome to meet the famous orator Cicero. Cicero was greatly impressed by the intellect and knowledge of the man, and he spoke highly of the Druids for the rest of his life, which wasn't that long. All in all, though, like I said, the Celts did not really chronicle their histories. It was all passed down orally, and the Druids were no different. All their secrets and knowledge were completely memorized. So they must have had some crazy memory palaces. All their secrets and knowledge were passed down from one priest to the next, mouth to ear, and whatever was documented in stone and the like on their monuments would have been allegorical and only able to be understood symbolically by other druids or anyone who was initiated into an analogous mystical order. It would have just seemed like fancy art to any non-druid looking at it. But the druids were more than just secret societies of ancient occultists. They were also keepers of morality and leaders to the Celts in law and spirituality equally, as much as being teachers. Even the kings took their lead from the Druids. Kings weren't even allowed to have diplomacy with other kings or other nations without a Druid present. So to say they were revered would be an understatement. And then there's the whole smear campaign of Druids being bloodthirsty, human sacrificers, and stuff like that. It is true that Druids committed sacrifice, but not necessarily the way that most of the ancient propagandists thought or said. They actually sacrificed uh, flowers and fruit, which doesn't sound very barbaric at all, but um, I guess they were like ancient hippies, but not really. Hippies would have put the flowers in their hair. The real Druids had retreated all the way to the British Isles by the time of Caesar. So the more brutish tales of them, if, if true, were the very real imitator of Druids, which there were a lot of them. These documented imitators were a bastardization of Druids and a far cry from the noble teachers Cicero venerated. At this point in time, most of the Druids were on, they were either on the British Isles or they were in Ireland. And these impersonators were superstitious and brutal, so not real druids. And they definitely did sacrifice people in horrific ways. Um, but they weren't the real druids. The real druids were known for their wisdom, philosophy, intelligence, compassion, 
and were extremely peaceful and compassionate. They would have looked at human sacrifice in a lot of ways how us, we would look at human sacrifice in modern times. Real Druidry is allegedly one of the most ancient and original of the wisdom traditions. And if they're actually the survivors of Atlantis or the ancestors of the survivors, then definitely that's probably one of the oldest. But in the, in the histories we got, definitely one of the oldest. And interestingly enough, there are actually druids around today. Not druids from the original lineage, obviously, but people have done their best to continue the tradition to the best of their ability and understanding. I mean, I guess there could be a secret society from the original lineage out there, but who knows? We work with what we got, and um, there is some stuff that we do have to work with concerning Druidry in modern times. There are, after all, some straight-up um, modern esoteric orders based on Druidism. I kid you not. To which I had no idea was a thing um, until I think back only not that long ago, like 2016 or so, but I had no idea that this was a thing up until then. There are, however, alleged records of ancient Druid schools, but the authenticity of things like that is dubious. It does have a romanticism about it, thanks to myths and legends. There's a lot to work with concerning these secretive priests of nature. Most world religions say that all their knowledge came from a single revelation. The Druids are unique in that this isn't the case. The Druids never claim to have all the answers. Whereas most big religions try to label everything and put it in a little box, the Druids' ideas and beliefs were much more fluid and adaptable, which meant a lot of dogma that normally forms from spiritual teachings was avoided. Druids were far more interested in asking questions than telling others how everything is and how they should be. With the resurrection of many long-forgotten spiritual traditions in the late 20th century and the 21st century, many have thrown modern Druidism and Wiccanism into the same box. Wiccanism, of course, being a modern pagan religion that allegedly has ties to the traditions of the pre-Christian peoples, but is throwing it in with Druidism really fair. It does seem like an unfair association, even though they do have some similarities. But in Wiccanism, the practitioners venerate the goddess and her divine consort, or the horned god, etc. There's many names for it. Druidism is more animistic. And if you don't know what animism is, I'm not talking about animals. Here's the definition. Animism is the belief that objects, places, and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. Potentially, animism perceives all things, animals, plants, rocks, rivers, weather systems, human handiwork, and perhaps even words, as animated and alive. Animism is used in the anthropology of religion as a term for the belief system of many indigenous peoples especially in contrast to the relatively more recent development of organized religions. Animism focuses on the metaphysical universe with a specific focus on the concept of the immaterial soul. Although each culture has its own mythologies and rituals, animism is said to describe the most common 
foundational thread of indigenous peoples, spiritual or supernatural perspectives. The animistic perspective is so widely held and inherent to most indigenous peoples that they often do not even have a word in their language that corresponds to animism. The term is an anthropological construct. However, as you'll see, this idea does vary in Druids, just like there's varying views in Wiccanism. But essentially in Druidism, basically everything is alive and has a divine presence or has like a divine essence flowing through it, which when compared to modern physics and quantum physics is pretty interesting because indeed the Druids were correct scientifically about many of their ideas, just in an ancient kind of way. For example, everything is vibrating energy and alive on its own way way different than we think like when you go into the quantum when you go into physics it's all vibrating and alive nature as a whole to the druids was not and is not separate but united however it is true that wicca and druidism are both nature-based just different Wicca began with Margaret Murray and her books she wrote on medieval religions that somehow survived on the download during the Christian era. It's an amalgamation of old school folk magic and folk beliefs, kind of. But uh, some people say that her evidence is dubious. But this gave rise to possible lost traditions in the 1920s when her work was first released. However, Gerald Gardner is considered the founder of modern Wicca back in the 60s and... <laughs> I'm sure that any Wiccans who were listening to this were like, wait a second. But yes, um, the official founder of Wicca is Gerald Gardner. However, Margaret Murray and her influence cannot be denied either. But covens and this kind of stuff was going on before Gerald Gardner was ever initiated back in 1939 by a group of proto-Wiccans. Gardner was also heavily influenced by the notorious Aleister Crowley, whom he actually met and interacted with for a while in 1947 and used Crowley's rituals, dating back all the way to 1912, as the foundation and inspiration for his own rituals that would become a part of Wicca. The two men had, like they got along for a while, they had similar ideas in a lot of ways, but in the end, Crowley kind of became uninterested in Gardner's ideas and Wicca and whatnot. Not hostile, just indifferent. When the two dug deeper, there were just irreconcilable differences in their esoteric ideologies. Something that Crowley would be more on the Druidry side of things over Wicca, but who knows what Crowley would do. And honestly, I'm no expert in Wicca whatsoever. I've read two books ever on Wicca um, a long time ago, many years ago. So I only have like a surface knowledge of it. I'm no expert but you can definitely see the influences of medieval alchemy in Wicca, which in turn has its origins in Greek philosophy. And though everyone is welcome to both traditions, it seems that statistically more females join Wicca, whereas more males uh, join Druidry. And this is just kind of random from individual people's interests, FYI. There's no exclusivity in either um, belief systems. And then there are the arguments and differences in opinions, with some saying that in Wicca, all are one. And in Druidry, all the gods are individuals or vice versa. In truth, there's many subsets of groups who have differing opinions on both sides. The core difference I can see, though, is that Wicca is a religion, but Druidism is a spiritual philosophy with a focus on there being no dogma. 
you may wonder why I kind of went into Wicca for a second, and it's because a lot of people try to say that modern Druidry came from Wicca when that's really not the case. But at the same time, they do have similarities. In essence, there are three types of Druids that have branching ideologies, kind of like different ways of looking at things. And that all three of these different branches get along. So it's not like they're, it's not like they're different um, denominations. So these are the roughly three categories. Hard polytheists believe that there are multiple deities and each of them exist as distinct individuals. Soft polytheists believe that there are multiple deities serving as a face of a single divinity. And the third is pantheists who believe that everything is an aspect of the divine and nothing exists outside of it. But despite the popularity of Wicca in modern times, Druidism is actually the highest growing form of alternative spirituality in Britain. In any case, modern Druids and Wiccans most likely get along just fine. But Wicca would definitely be more recognizable as a cult with all their focus on magic and ritual traditions that yeah, they got their similarities with Western occultism. That doesn't mean that Druids don't do magic stuff. It's just different. I'm sure you get what I mean. A lot of elemental magic stuff found in Western occultism is right there in Wicca, complete with the pentagram and circles and everything. Druidry is much less wands and candles and incense and pentagrams and stuff like that. I don't want to say shamanic, but yeah, we'll get there. You'll, you'll get what I mean. But one of the most prominent ways that many were inspired to dig up the lost ways of Druidism happened a lot earlier than we might think. And it was the constant challenge to modern world ideas by the mere presence of places like Stonehenge and the reality of just how little was truly known or understood about ancient Britain. I mean, this is what inspired Tolkien to write The Lord of the Rings because he too was disappointed in Britain's lack of authentic mythology. It was pretty much swept away over the millennia by myriad wars and conquests and... Yeah. With um, the conquests of Christianity being the last nail in the coffin. However, Christianity had a practice of absorption and alterations. So even in the medieval Christian era, a shadow of the old ways remained just hidden. So the Reconstructionists may have very little to work with, but there are hints and ways to put together the puzzle. Now, as I've already stated, the Druids and Celts were pretty much universally preserved orally, their, you know, their history and um, all that stuff, their myths, legends, it was all preserved orally through bardic traditions. But that doesn't mean that other cultures didn't make tons of legends about them. And that doesn't mean that these bards lost all the myths either. One of the main sources of inspiration to modern druids is the Welsh book called the Mabinogion, which is a compilation of pre-Christian Celtic myths passed down through their bard tradition. But at the same time, since it was compiled like uh, in the medieval times, like 12th century, it has been altered by culture and time. However, it is still one of the best sources of Celtic mythology, despite how altered it became over the Christian era. And we'll look into the Mabinogion as well as other Druidic myths when we come back. You are listening to Cryptic Chronicles.
$30 off weed with code PODCAST? Did someone say $30 off weed with code PODCAST? Amuse delivers over 500 high-quality cannabis products from the Bay Area brands you love at everyday low prices. You can also rest assured that everything will be up to your high standards. So what are you waiting for? Start shopping now at Amuse.com. Use promo code PODCAST to save 30 bucks off your next order. That's A-M-U-S-E dot com. Is your brain always hungry? Do you have a mental appetite that often goes unsated? You may be suffering from hungry brain syndrome, a debilitating and sometimes life-threatening condition experienced by humans who require double, sometimes even quadruple, the amount of mental nutrition needed to sustain the general population. But now there's help. For years, our dedicated team of world-class researchers have been developing a thicker, more nutrient-dense podcast specifically for sufferers of hungry brain syndrome. And now we want to share it with you. All you have to do is search for our podcast, The Whole Rabbit, in your podcast player of choice, and select from one of our delicious flavors, like Slovenian succubi, Gnosticism, or Ancient Egypt. It's no wonder The Whole Rabbit is the most recommended treatment for hungry brain syndrome on the market. So what are you waiting for? Try The Whole Rabbit today. Do not listen while deep sea diving. Side effects may include eating carrots and shooting lasers. With all the invasions and conquests on the British Isles, the long-time inhabitants were pushed back and foreigners became the main population of Britain. Or, I mean England, the uh, area that would become England. The Celtic tribes did survive, though, but they were pushed into Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. I mean, they did already, they did already live there. What I mean is they were pushed out of uh, center Britain. The rest would be dominated by the Angles, Saxons, and Norse. Later, the Normans, too, came to the party. But the point is that the original inhabitants that lived on the islands that were the cultures of the Druids were pushed back, leaving England to new peoples. However, all across the islands, the folklore of the Druids remained prominent in their myths and legends. And it is actually from uh, Celtic Wales that we get the Mabinogion. In the Mabinogion, we have Druidic and Celtic myths and there are other remnants too, because it is quite clear that the Arthurian legends, you know, famous, comes from many cultures and influences, which also points towards the same source of the Grail myth. The Arthurian legends absolutely originate from Celtic mythology, and the Grail myth does not originate from Christian stories. The Chapel Perilous also comes to mind as something too esoteric to be of mainstream Christian origin. In any case, it is the Mabinogion that inspired J.R.R. Tolkien and the tales that inspired the entire fantasy genre pretty much as a whole. Sword and sorcery, dragons, knights, epic quests, and battles, it's all here. This is the source of all the modern fantasy genre, or the inspiration. You get what I'm saying? So, I want to give quick summaries of these stories. And the link to the book I used will be in the details of this episode, and you should totally look into it. It's great. And um, remember, too, that a lot of these people, names, and places can be switched out the further one goes back in time. So the stories can mean many different things and have a lot of symbolism and ancient secrets buried within. And you can also pretty much just switch out wizards and stuff like that with druids. 
The stories are a lot longer in their real version, not my summaries. There's a lot more fighting, action, battle, magic, monsters, mayhem, you name it. This is a lot of uh, Game of Thrones type stuff too. So I'm not doing the stories nearly as much justice as they deserve. The Mabinogion originates from Wales, one of the more, um, you know, the actual Celtic areas of Britain and was released by an unknown author in the 1200s. Not to mention, too, it's obvious that a lot of these characters are old gods who were updated for the more modern Christian time. And druids look towards this book for ancient druidic knowledge. This is one of their main... I don't think they have, like, scriptures, but if there's something analogous, this is it. One of them. All right, here we go. The first branch of the Mabinogi. And, um... Mabinogion is like plural, so singular, they're Mabinogi. In this first story, we have Puyel, the king of Dyfed, in the western part of Wales. When hunting, he gets separated from his men and comes across King Aran, the ruler in the other world of a kingdom called Anwifen. Oh, in this other world, quote-unquote, is a universal belief in all Druidism. Anyway, Aran is offended by Puyel, for stealing his kill during his hunt, but says that he will forgive him if he kills an enemy, King Hafgan, in a neighboring region of his kingdom. Puyel agrees, so the two kings switch places and rule each other's kingdoms. Eventually, Puyel does defeat the king and returns to Daifed a year later, where he and Aran switch back to their real bodies. Later, Puyel saves a woman named Rhiannon, who is about to be married to somebody against her will and ends up marrying her himself, but first must overcome obstacles to win her from a trickster named Gual. They have a child together named Pridery, who vanished in the morning of his birth, and the disappearance is blamed on Puriel's wife. However, the boy does eventually return. This first story, the first branch of the Mabinagi, establishes the importance of integrity in living an honorable life, to keep promises and avenge misdeeds it establishes the power of somebody who puts themselves in danger to stand up for their convictions, not only just as an individual, but magically. It establishes that magic and the supernatural are commonplace and any powerful individual can wield it naturally um, or specialize in it, I guess, as you'll see later. But it is a natural aspect of life. So no one questions it or points it out. It's just like the wind. A natural aspect of the world. And now on to the next one. The second story, titled The Second Branch of the Mabinagi. The King of Ireland sails to the shores of Wales, and Bran the Blessed rides with his men to meet them. Bran is a giant, which is why he was made King of Britain. The King of Ireland wants to marry Bran's sister to unite their two kingdoms, and Bran agrees. During his time on mainland Wales, the King of Ireland's prized horses are mutilated by somebody who was secretly against the wedding and the union of their two kingdoms. The king requests a magic cauldron that resurrects people from the dead as repayment. Then he and Bran's sister return back to Ireland. However, Bran's sister is mistreated, and when he hears about it, he takes his army to massacre everyone in Ireland. The Irish are slaughtered in genocide. Bran is wounded and asks his men to cut off his head for good fortune and to help guard Britain. 
His sister dies of sorrow at his death upon their return to Britain. This story shows how violence between people quickly turns into violence between nations, and at that point, life is cheap. It is a, an old-school Game of Thrones-type tale for nobles, I think, with bloodshed, betrayal, loss, and grief in plenty. Not only for the noble rulers, but for the normal people, too. Because their feud is just a, a snowballing effect that hurts everyone of the normal people in both nations. And the Irish are, like, wiped out, which is pretty messed up. They repopulate, though, don't worry. The third branch of the Mabinagi. In the third branch, we come back to the son of the star of the first story, Pridery. He's the son of Rhiannon and Puyel, only an adult now. He's also a survivor of the wars between Bran, the King of Ireland, from the second story, and you know, the, the King of Ireland versus Bran wars. He's a survivor of those wars, and he returns home and has a family friend marry his widowed mother, and his whole group and entourage are happy for a bit. That is, until a magic mist travels across Wales. The magic mist kills every living thing other than wild animals, but somehow, Pridery and his group manage to escape the mist, but everyone else in the kingdom is dead. They survive by hunting, but miss civilization, so they travel to England to become tradesmen. However, they were so good at making stuff, all the other tradesmen in England got jealous and chased them back to the now-empty realm that they left in Wales. On a hunt, Pridery discovers a strange castle and vanishes within it, followed by his mother who also vanishes. The magical mist returns and inside it, the castle vanishes. A wizard comes to his companions and a deal is made. Pridery and his mother are returned and the wizard waves his wand and life returns to the realm. This story is about the nobles and royalty being struck down to be working class people and getting their hands dirty, um, having to work for survival, something that they weren't really used to before. It was all caused by the sins of his parents. The wizard that was uh, causing all this trouble, you know, this druid, was actually avenging the man that his mother was originally supposed to marry in the first story that um, um, Puyel had to fight or had to do uh, deeds to overcome. To marry his wife. And though there's a lot of symbolism and subtext in it, I think overall it's a warning of generational grudges. Next up is the first story that has a different kind of title. It's no longer a branch of the Mabinagi in a number. And it is called Peridur, son of Ephrog. In a world of violence and sorrow, Peridur's mother tries to keep her son safe and out of danger from the world. However, Peridur wants to become a knight and seeks adventure. He journeys to meet the legendary King Arthur and goes on dangerous quests to prove himself to the king. Every time he returns to the king's court, his renown grows and he becomes a living legend eventually. He defeats a monster serpent and rules in Constantinople for 14 years before leaving and seeking out King Arthur for more adventures. This story is important because it is the first time King Arthur is actually introduced and it uh, introduces him to the world of the Mabinagion. Also in the story, Peridur gains a magic stone that generates infinite money to which he gives to his friend without hesitation, showing he values deeds and people more than material wealth. 
and it is his nature of determination and honor and lack of greed that endears him to the great King Arthur. Next is the dream of the Emperor Maxon. This story begins with the Roman Emperor dreaming of a mysterious woman. Emperor Maxon commits himself and all his resources to find this woman of his literal dreams. His quest leads him to Britain, where he finally meets the dream woman and marries her and conquers Britain. But all is not well back in Rome because rebellion is growing. He returns with British warriors and quells the uprising. This tale explores the idea that the dreamland and the real world are not entirely separate, and that the characters in the Mabinogion consider the dreamland a second life, and not something that should just be dismissed and forgotten like we do in modern times. It is also the only story starting outside of Britain and shows that Rome is nothing compared to the Isles magically, where Rome is brick and marble, Wales and the islands in general are magical places, almost separate from the rest of the world. It's like leaving our world and going straight into Middle Earth. Uh, the story blurs the lines of reality. Next is Lud and Lefley. Lud becomes king of Britain, and his wiser brother becomes king of France. A miasma of pestilence descends upon the isles, spreading plague and disease all over Britain. King Lud journeys to his brother in France, who is known to be much wiser than him, and his brother gives him the knowledge he needs to end the plague. This tale is all about looking into um, like yourself and understanding that you have limitations. It's all about looking in other people for qualities that you lack to solve problems and also having the humility to ask and to accept one cannot do everything on their own, no matter who they are, even kings. It is a story about um, not giving in to arrogance and letting it make you blind to the detriment of others, such as if Lud never went to his brother, his people would have suffered way more from the plagues. Next is the Lady of the Well. In this story, knights tell stories amongst themselves as King Arthur slumbers. Sir Owain hears another knight's tale about how he was defeated by the Black Knight, which makes Owain want to face him. He does, and defeats the Black Knight. He marries the fallen Black Knight's wife, the Lady of the Well, ruling the fallen Black Knight's realm for a handful of years. But then, one day, King Arthur journeys to find Owain. Reluctantly, the Lady of the Well says he may leave on a quest for a few months, but no more, making Owain swear an oath to return to her. He does not come back for years, breaking his oath and tainting his honor in the process. In fact, he never comes back, but um, this is when he, when he doesn't come back for years, that's when he realizes, like, oh, I'm not really um, an honorable knight. Owain is too disgraced to return to his wife and too disgraced to remain in King Arthur's court. He travels the land seeking redemption through deeds that might wipe away the stains of his failings. An honorless man has no place in noble company, and he knows he cannot deny the thrill of battle and violence despite his desire to be an honorable knight. I think the message is no matter who Owain faces in battle, the real enemy and only enemy is himself. The next story is Geraint, son of Urban. 
the wife of King Arthur, Guinevere, is dishonored by the Knight of the Sparrowhawk. Sir Geraint, a young knight of the court, seeks justice for the insults and pursues the transgressor. Geraint eventually finds out the name of the knight. The two face off in a tournament, and Geraint defeats Edern. Then demands he return to the king's court to apologize to Guinevere. Geraint then meets a woman named Nid, and they get married, and everyone at the court loves her. One day, Geraint misunderstands Enid and thinks that she cheated on him. He forces her to go on a dangerous quest with him, but in the end, they figure things out and all is well once again and they succeed in their quest. Enid never cheated on him. It was all a misunderstanding and he overreacted. Enid's courage and strength during all the ordeals of the quest make Geraint look foolish and just everything just makes him look kind of bad overall. And yeah, he seems kind of like a dummy compared to his wife and it, but luckily she was a badass, if not more badass than him, and everything turns out okay. No matter what danger they face, she's perfectly fine and handles it. This story shows the massive difference in wealth between the nobles and the world, because in his journeys, Drink comes across much poorer nobility than he's used to. It's also a tale of not being insecure or going too overboard with your honor. Like there's a line, and there's nuance to stuff. The next story is how Colwich won Owen. King Arthur's cousin Colwich must marry the daughter of a giant known for violence. To aid him on the quest, he asks King Arthur and his knights for help, who join him. The giant, like in many ancient folk tales, sets a series of tasks for Colwich to complete, and if he doesn't accomplish these tasks, then he can't have his marriage, and they are improbable or even impossible to complete. However, in the end, thanks to the help of his companions, Colwich is successful and marries the giant's daughter. Throughout this tale, basically, all the characters deal with hardship or some sort of punishment. In fact, all the main characters are being punished in some way. The giant is cursed that if his daughter ever marries, he'll die. Colwich was forced to go on the quest as punishment to his stepmother. Lots of the quests the giant gives Colwich is to punish others, transgressors, criminals. Yet, despite all the punishment and whatnot, there is no complaining going on throughout the story at all. And the final story is Ranabwi's dream. This story shows a much less lavish and magnificent side of knighthood. It's about an impoverished knight named Ranabwi. He dreams about going to King Arthur's court and watches him play a game with the knight Owen. But when a truce is agreed upon, the dream ends. This story shows that not all knights are famous, revered, or well-off. In fact, many knights live in very poor and horrible conditions. And King Arthur's knights and people like them in their circle they are an exception. His glorious time spent with Arthur is just a dream, just like the lavish life other famous knights have, he'll only have in his dreams. It's kind of a, it's kind of a weird way to end the Mabinogion, because it's just kind of mute and anticlimactic. Um, and I couldn't really, it's really, it's longer though. I summed it up pretty quick, like basic. But I, I couldn't tell exactly what it was trying to say other than maybe it's cool to 
have these dreams of big stuff and all that, but maybe you should stay grounded and understand that not everything that you dream of will be possible for you. Which is kind of a downer way to end. But there's a lot more in there, especially with the dream stuff, so I could be wrong. This is the only one that I got kind of confused on, though. The other ones I felt like I was pretty solid about what the symbolism and metaphors and stuff like that were saying. And remember, too, that all those are incredibly brief summaries of the stories, with them having all the action and magic that you'd expect from a high fantasy. So you should absolutely absorb those stories in a full, because there's a lot more um, symbolism and stuff to analyze than what I said. What I said is just as summing it up as best as possible. But there's a lot more to dig into. There are obviously ex-gods in it, downgraded to normal characters of the story. They often have magical powers and are in the form of an animal, but analogous to pre-Christian Celtic gods. Or they're just normal people who are like heroic legendary people who are representing gods of myth that have been altered over the millennia to eventually evolve into this story, these stories. And from what I read, the original Celtic themes still melt through, which is why so many modern druids hold the Mabinogion in such high esteem. It is one of the few remnants of the old bardic traditions that told their people's history and mythology orally for many thousands of years. there thanks for listening to cryptic chronicles the show is sponsored by blueberry and if you're interested in starting your own podcast use our link we'll even give your podcast a shout out go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the blueberry link on the homepage. by doing so you'll be helping the show blueberry is optimized for itunes as well as all podcast hubs you won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees in fact you won't have to leave your own website you'll have your own rss feed and no third-party sites Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. 
We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for So just what do Druids believe in? What do modern-day Druid revivalists believe? It's actually a pretty in-depth and complicated topic. Druidism venerates ancestors, deities, and spirits of nature. Some also choose to pay homage to quote-unquote outsider spirits, but this varies from individual to individual. So, oddly enough, the mystical nature of Druidry is actually compatible with any other religion. You don't have to choose Druidry over any other. You can actually blend them together just fine. And the revivalists for Druidry have actually been around for a long time and are not even limited to the 20th or 21st centuries. It's been going on for hundreds of years. In truth, there have been multiple branches, even as far back as the 1600s and 1700s. These people didn't have much to work with, obviously, but could they could string together stuff off of already established ideas of what the Druids were all about from historical accounts. They were associated with Pythagoras of the Greeks, a philosopher who ran a secret society revolving around sacred geometry and the Eleusian mysteries. So the revivalists absorbed the wisdom and lore of Pythagoras, and of course, as I've already said, the Mabinagion, but there are many other remnants as well. I don't want to go too into it because I just go on and on, but let's just say that it's not a new thing. A lot of these older revisionists even tried to mix Druidism into the Christianity of the times, which shows you the idea of blending Druidry with other traditions is an old one. At its core though, much like Gnostics and how they can mix with other traditions easily and still be Gnostics, but at its core, Druidism is all about building a stronger relationship with nature, ancestors, and the divine. The divine being an abstract idea and not the... God, the guy in the clouds idea, but more so a universal idea of the divine common in the ancient world. Druids loosely follow five core tenets of Druidism. One, nature is spirit and spirit is nature. Druidry is a spiritual path, not a religious one. And the vitality of the divine runs through all things in nature. Humans are not separate from nature. Even our artificial creations are not separate from nature. Space is not separate from nature. The universe is not separate from nature, etc. Two, the quote-unquote other world. The other world is one of the inspirations for the unseen realm in the Lord of the Rings universe, as well as uh, many others. Ideas similar to the other world are pretty much found in, I guess, like all folklores, actually. Three, death and rebirth. Though greatly varying in ideas, a type of reincarnation process is highly thought of as one of the, the core Druid beliefs, but could take a variety of different forms and not even necessarily get reincarnated back to our world. Reincarnation is a convoluted subject in Druidry, but essentially energy is always uh, recycled and reshaped. In some views, you have to die in the other world in order to be born into this one. Or... The three goals. 
which are wisdom, creativity, and love. These three things should be cultivated, sought out, and shared in all ways as a lifelong mission for any druid. Following these three goals will always lead to a fulfilled and enjoyable life. 5. The Web of Life All things are connected. This is the animism part and oddly coincides with the ideas in like quantum physics. It also shares the ideas with Taoism, Hinduism, people of the steppes and plains like the Mongols, Hermeticism, and Native American beliefs. Basically, I guess it could be like ancient string theory in a way, but with the web of life comes the connection to your ancestors as well as your descendants and just uh, basically all that new age kind of all stuff is connected kind of thing, all is one. And out of those five uh, core tenets of Druidism, I want to go a little bit more into the other world lore. The other world is where outsider spirits roam, and sometimes, but not always, even the spirits of deceased humans. It has a lot in common with the astral plane from occult lore, or, you know, it's found in uh, a lot of traditions. It's called by many names, but these many names could just be different realms within the other world itself. Laws of our reality don't exist there, or are inconsistent. Like, for example, time can flow differently or not even be linear. Furthermore, physical ailments are non-existent there, so nobody ever gets sick. And there are many ways to enter this other world, even if you are a living human in our reality. In fact, many heroes of myth travel to and from the other world. The doors are usually mist, bodies of water, or something like that. Wet weather. In some views, the dreamlands are also a lair of the other world, which is why the characters in the Mabinagion took dreams so seriously. The other world is also the realm of the Shi, who are the Celtic gods of old that still, till this day, perform banquets for heroes and eventually became part of fairy folklore. It is also where the horned man resides, which is basically kind of, well, no, it's not basically, but it's like similar to the horned god from Wiccanism, Pan, Hermes, the green man called Serunos, by many tribes in ancient Gaul. The horned man is also associated with Samhain, as well as nature. In any case, the old gods did not go anywhere and still dwell in the other world. And that doesn't mean that they don't come over to our world either, especially at sacred times like the solstices or Samhain, when the barrier between worlds becomes thin. But all solstices and equinoxes are times that the old gods may become more active in our world, as well as outsider spirits, or spirits of the dead. I know you probably know this, but just in case somebody's listening who doesn't, Samhain is Halloween. A lot of people mispronounce it Samhain, because in English that's how it like, sounds phonetically, but it's not pronounced that way. So you've probably heard it before, but it's uh, Samhain, and it's Halloween basically. Well, one of its uh, one of the traditions where Halloween came from, because there's actually many. John Michael Greer talks about wisdom of the stone circle and the three triads of Druid philosophy in his work, The Druidry Handbook, which outlines a mythology for modern Druidism with roots to the original current. The first triad. The first triad of druidic teachings focuses on three images, each of which is in and of itself a triad. 
the three rays of light, the three circles of manifestation, and the three elements of Druid philosophy. And he begins with a myth. Einigen, the giant, was the first being in existence who witnessed three rays of light coming from the heavens. Those three rays were also a word of three syllables, the true name of the god Kelly, the hidden spirit of life that creates all things. In the words was all the knowledge that ever was, is, and will be. Einigen carved the words onto wooden staves he made. When other beings came into existence and saw the staves with the strange words carved on them, they didn't look at all the knowledge within the words or try to see the mystery. They began to worship the staves themselves as if they were gods. When Einigen witnessed what the beings were doing and what they had imposed on the staves, upon which was carved the mystery, he became furious. Not only furious, but just overall upset, um, sorrow on top of anger, and pretty much add in all the darker emotions for the most part. But these emotions consumed him so much that a giant burst into flames. A year and a day after Einigen's death, Manu, son of Tirwive, discovered the giant's skull. The three staves he had carved had taken root and were growing inside the skull, growing out of its mouth. Manu took the staves from the skull and taught himself to read the words the giant had carved on them. Manu created the lore of the Rowan staves and became a legendary wise master of the ages. The wisdom was passed on to the Druids, the ancient lore masters of the Celts. So the knowledge from the three rays of light passed through many minds. And this origin myth of the Druid revival the symbolism of the three rays is common anywhere Neo-Druidism can be found. The revival people, I mean. Remember, not all modern Druids think the same way. There is no one way. But this particular group, you can see this symbolism of the three rays in basically any, anywhere they go, uh, all over, wherever they meet. It's their main symbolism. The rays represent Awen, the heart of the Druid path. Awen means spirit, inspiration, and illumination. Awen is the inner light that gives the mind the ability to reach beyond itself. Awen creates writers and poets and shows glimpses of the future to prophets and diviners. Awen also seems similar in description to experiences of Gnosis. Some experience this outside themselves uh, outward as well. Turning towards nature or the spiritual embodiment of things in nature some call gods. The inward Awen and the outward an are represented by different ways to draw the three rays of light in a symbolic manner. Next is the three circles of manifestation. The three circles map out the origin and destiny of the human soul. Abred, the lowest circle, marks the start of the soul's journey, other than the primordial Anun realm, that is. But Abred is the realm of plants and animal life and nature as well as smaller life, all the way down to microscopic life. Each soul comes from the cauldron of a noon, the mineral realm, a reservoir of unformed soul energy. Newly formed souls are birthed in the most basic, single-celled forms of life. Each incarnation has lessons to be learned, and as the soul attains more experience, it forms into more complex states, life after life, form after form all the way up 
coming from the tiniest microscopic or even quantum forms of life. It may seem like an endless cycle of reincarnation, but outside of space-time, it's obvious that it's going somewhere, and the druids have no romanticization about Abred. All life, including animals or plant life, is short and challenging a lot of the time, and often these lives end in painful and unpleasant deaths. Plants fight for water and light with one another, with many dying off in the process. Animals only live by taking life exterior to them for energy, be it carnivore or omnivore. The druids say this darkness is not accidental, and it is absolutely not unnecessary. To the druids, each soul must see all things. They must also suffer all things. There are no exceptions. The good stuff must be learned and experienced too, but all must be experienced before moving beyond the circle of Abred. And human life is at the upper level of Abred, um, and also going into the next level, Gwyndeth. Enlightened souls pass beyond Abred and can remain human going into Gwyndeth, but there is always the risk of falling back down to Abred if lessons are forgotten. It is possible for souls to fall all the way back to a noon, so there's no guarantee of only progress. And this is most likely where you are now in this druid lore, listener. You are in Gwyndeth. Kudvil. All humans' personal failings mirror what's found in the animal world. And if a human does not learn from their analogies, then upon death, they may fall back into one of those animal forms that embody their, their failings to fully learn the lessons that escape them. One particular animal characteristic is usually one of the main ones overarching that um, that uh, a human is challenged with. It is, they have all kinds, but there is usually one main big one. This is their Kudvil. Seers and spiritually powerful people can even see this animal when looking at someone. However, despite all the pitfalls, all souls eventually do find themselves at the second level of Gwyndeth. No matter how many times they are forced to go backward and forward and over and over. At this level, the soul can draw upon all it has learned consciously and can meditate on all the experience and knowledge it gained. Each soul learns to express its awan, its unique experience of the universe. And then the soul can finally depart the circle of Gwyndeth and beyond because Gwyndeth is not a resting place or like a paradise afterlife or anything like that, but it's actually just the beginning of a new journey for the soul. There is no afterlife, because there is no after, quote-unquote. Kaijent is the circle beyond. The souls beyond Gwyndeth are as different as microscopic one-celled organisms of the first circle are to humans, experienced enough to leave Gwyndeth. So, it is like transcendence to a higher being a higher state of existence once the learning process is complete. Who knows? Um, there are those who say this is the birth of gods. Kaijen is the circle beyond, and it is actually unknowable and incomprehensible to us in our current form. And the final ray is the elements of nature. To Druidism, the elements are not just things of nature, but also aspects of human nature, such as fire being anger and the like. The elements are also emotions and the elements are not exclusive, but can be shaped as needed and overlap with one another. Because it's weird that they have three, whereas um, traditional esotericism has five. Earth, water, 
air, fire, ether. It's just, it's there, but it's just viewed differently and they blend together into many different subcategories. Still, the broader tradition remains, I guess. And that's basically the three rays of the Druid Revival. I could go on to cover more of the practices and beliefs of the Druid Revival, the Druidic traditions, as well as legends and other examples of mysteries around the Druids, but I kind of ran out of time. Let me know if you'd like me to do another episode on Druidic traditions and practices specifically. I had to pick and choose to summarize the info enough to squeeze into a single episode. But when I was doing the research, I didn't realize there was enough to work off to actually make more episodes on the topic. But in any case, I hope you enjoyed the mysteries of the Druids. That's all for today's episode. Special thanks to Colton Spenner, who requested me to make an episode on this topic. As a supporter, you too can help guide what content I'll cover in the direction of the show. You can support through PayPal, Patreon, or Subscribestar. Just go to crypticchronicles.com and go to the Chronicler's Vault at the top of the homepage, and there should be links to everything there. And as always, I'd like to thank my current patrons, MJ Calvo, Adrian, John, Celestial Weavers, Alien X, Lorna Grubb, Linda Gonzalez, Angela Delaire, Ashley, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, Patricia Coles, Kayla, Max, Michael Worrell, Jimmy Woods, Rodius, Sophia Owens, Scott Wilman, Beware the Q, Ashley Thompson, Matt Poland, Johnny Wick, The Yale Adams, Danny Van Heck, Carnage, Jesse Leach, Austin Monday, Michael Graham, Ed Hawks, Trusty Old Senpai, Lex Lazarus, Brian Nolan, Jared, Matthew Lawson, Jismic, Space Coin, Gary Hetzel, Tom McClarney, Colton Spenner, Justin, Miyamoto Musashi, Jeremy Gross, and Psychic Terror. Make sure to follow Cryptic Chronicles on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, etc., Instagram, and yeah. Thanks for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, and most of all, thanks for listening. And as one of the greatest Roman emperors who ever lived once said, It never ceases to amaze me. We all love ourselves more than other people, but care more about their opinion than ours. <laughs>